Hey everyone, this is Charlie Levine, editor of Angler's Journal Magazine, and you're listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by, you guessed it, Angler's Journal Magazine. (laughs) If you're looking for a different fishing magazine that's not just about sharpening hooks and tying knots, but we dive into these personality profiles and, and talk about really cool places and our favorite game fish, please visit anglersjournal.com and pick up a subscription. Um, All right, so today we're going to be talking about redfish. So I moved to Florida over 20 years ago, and I've been fishing for redfish for a long time, and they are definitely one of my favorite species. And probably the best place to catch redfish are in the Gulf of Mexico, namely Louisiana. And there's been a lot of talk about redfish regulations there and the population of the species and various stakeholders, and I really wanted to get a podcast done about this topic, and we're lucky enough to have um, Chris Macaluso, I hope I pronounced that correctly. That on, yep. (laughs) And Chris, you're with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and you're a lifetime Louisiana angler, and you probably know a hell of a lot more about this than than I do. Um, Thank you so much for making time to talk about redfish. So first, tell me how much you love redfish. Oh, I love redfish. Uh, I mean, I, I love catching redfish. I can tell you, you know, growing up, um, you know, I'm 47 now. Um, I, you know, I feel like I kind of fished in the heyday of redfish uh, in Louisiana where, you know, we had days where, you know, a hundred, you'd catch a hundred of them. And that's right. really an exaggeration. Um you know, days where you'd find them ganged up in specific spots, say down around Venice or maybe down around Fouchon or Coquitry, where, um, you know, places along Louisiana's coast where, you know, every cast, uh, as long as you wanted to cast, you were going to hook one. So uh, I tell you, when I really started appreciating redfish was, uh, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, um, when I started fishing for them for with things other than say like live minnows or live shrimp or you know when you started throwing spinner baits for them you know when you figured out they'd hit spinner baits or chatter baits or gold you know, spoon put, yeah gold <laughs> spoon you know you you'd put the trolling motor down and find a grassy bank and just pitch spinner baits to them like you would bass and, and um, you know and then we fished some redfish tournaments as they became more popular as I got into my twenties and thirties and it was just so much fun, you know, just, just throwing that spinner bait along the grass or throwing that spoon or every once in a while, a topwater bait, even started fishing them in frogs, you know, with frogs, like down around areas where you got a lot of fresh water, but they were still full of redfish. That's uh, cool. They'd hit a butter frog. I mean, they, there's just so many different ways to catch those fish and they fight so hard. Uh, it's just a magnificent fish. Lucky to grow up in a place that had so many of them. Yeah, no, I, that's one of the cool things about them is there's so many ways to do it. You can target them on fly, on the flats. You can obviously catch them on bait. You can throw all kinds of artificials. But, you know, for me, where I live here in Florida, it's like hunting them and then you see that wake. I know it's different sure. there because it's a lot, you know, dirtier water in the marsh and stuff. But that it's just there's nothing cooler. And, you know, when they're feeding and they got their head down in the mud and they're you can see them tailing, it's they're just such a cool species. And having fished in Louisiana, I mean, it's like you were saying, it's I mean, if you're on them, you're on them. And and mm-hmm. for years, you know, when I would go down there, it seemed like the mentality was sort of we don't go back till we catch our limit. You know, it was always that kind of a way with reds and trout and um it's definitely changing now and 
it seems the population is, you know, it's it's stayed up to the, all that that fishing for so many years, but now it seems like some of the wounds are starting to show, and there's been some changes, right? Well, I would say we definitely have fewer fish, um, and um, you know, one of the things that I've worked on the most closely throughout my career, you know, over the last twenty years, has been, you know, the relationship between. Uh, coastal communities and coastal fisheries and habitat and what habitat loss does to your fisheries production really does to your ability to live and work and access fishing along Louisiana's coast. And really there's nowhere else in the world that's seen the kind of habitat decline uh, that Louisiana has in terms of loss of coastal marshes. Um, and so I think one of the biggest problems that we face, and this was predicted Years and years and years ago, in the late 80s, early 1990s, there was a big effort by the Coastal Conservation Association in Louisiana, really across the Gulf, to get gill nets out of the water, to really start protecting redfish as a game fish um, because of the value they had for recreational fisheries. And at the time, there was just an excessive commercial harvest of those fish and an excessive recreational harvest. I mean, there was a time in my lifetime where the recreational limit on redfish was 50. 50 in a day per um, angler and we, yeah per angler we had that many fish um and really it wasn't until uh the restaurant craze the black and redfish craze yeah. being redfish to eat became mm -hmm. uh even among recreational fishermen everybody wanted to keep trout and eat trout everybody wanted to keep red snapper very few people wanted to keep redfish chef uh, prudhomme right wasn't he the guy who started that whole thing and what he was doing was there were a lot of big redfish out in the Gulf of Mexico. That's where they spawn, you know, and we're talking about these oversized, you know, 25 plus inch fish. They were easy to catch uh, in gill nets and in persanes and things like that. It was a readily accessible fish and it was inexpensive. And what he figured out is you could take a, a fish that doesn't taste that great, you know, like a big you know, 12, 15, 18 pound redfish just doesn't taste very good uh, compared to a red snapper or a trout. Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of seasoning and a bunch of butter on it. You can burn the outside of it and you can make it taste pretty good. Yeah. And so after that happened and after that recipe became so popular, we saw just a devastating amount of redfish being harvested. But back to the point I was trying to make, even back then when when the collapse of the species was was sort of imminent, if there wasn't some uh, significant curtailing of that harvest, um, the smart biologists recognized that if if we didn't stave off the habitat loss, that we'd be right back having that same discussion about potential collapse decades down the line, and. You know, if you look in some of the most historically productive basins uh, along Louisiana's coast, like the Barataria Basin, the Terrebonne Basin, the Timbalier Basin, it's where we've experienced the highest rate of land loss in the world. And it's where the redfish population has really taken a hit. And so a lot of it is just habitat driven and 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 it really is only going to repair itself long term uh, when the efforts are put forward to rebuild that habitat. So do those fish get displaced? Are they going somewhere else or are they just being destroyed? No, I think what happens is, um, you know, the big fish spawn 
And then the the larval fish uh, try to recruit back into those marshes to grow up. And there's just fewer and fewer. There's Spots. just less acreage. There's just fewer and fewer places to go. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, a redfish really needs in those formative years, uh, they really need that edge habitat, those submerged grass beds, the pond, mm. the winding bayous. They need that brackish and sometimes even freshwater marsh habitat to grow up in and now that you've got less and less of it uh there's just fewer places for the fish to grow up and the ones that do grow up uh in the areas that are becoming more isolated uh become easier to catch uh and so you've concentrated the fish i think in the smaller and smaller areas um and it's made them it's made them easier to prey upon yeah, it's unfortunate. And, you know, we see it here in Florida, too. And the gillnet ban was massive to to bring the fishery back. And it was really good. And now it's kind of in the same same sort of status. And I can't remember the last time I kept a, a redfish personally. And I feel like I'm not alone in that thinking. A lot of anglers are more, I believe, happy to, to let these fish go because they love them. Um, and is it... I guess are the sport anglers the biggest um the biggest factor in that fishery there right now? I, I was reading about the pogie boats and the Medhain boats and, and them being pushed out, but I would imagine it's still recreational anglers who are who are catching the majority of these fish, right? Yeah, it's definitely recreational fishermen. I mean, it's a game fish. Uh, it, you know, you're not allowed to tar target it commercially now. You know, they they are allowed to target them with bows. That's become a bit controversial here in Louisiana. There's a there's a you know pretty substantial bow fish fishery, but it's can't, really it's no can't release those. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you stick them and they're coming in the boat. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but I think that attitude has changed a little bit. I think it's it's changed necessarily because. There just aren't as many redfish out there to catch right now. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of people are putting them back. But I think the other thing is that uh, there's been, I think, a, a pretty big change in the mindset in terms of keeping the fish over the slot. Like, um, you know, you see here and there people still keeping 27-inch plus fish, uh, but most people by far are releasing those fish, which is a good thing. I mean, th those fish will survive, especially if you catch them on artificial baits. They'll survive being put back in the water if you don't fight them too hard. Um, you can revive them and they'll swim. And those are the ones that are out there spawning. Yeah, those are the breeding fish. Those are the brood stock. And that's why, you know, you're only allowed to keep one over the slot in Louisiana, uh, you know, for the last 25 plus years. Uh, and why I think a lot of people have started turning those fish back. They're really not great to eat. Um, but they're also the ones that are out there making the babies. I mean, and yep. it's critical um, to have as many of those out there as possible to get those fish back into the, you know, to have them spawn and have the juveniles be able to come back into the fishery. Uh, in terms of the, the menhaden boats, I think there are a number of factors there. You know, number one, the science on the impact of, of menhaden fishing, pogie fishing, off Louisiana's coast has, has become more refined in the last five to six years. Um, you know, we know that in order for us to have a sustainable population of redfish, in order for us to have a population large enough to, to, uh, to make it to that escapement rate that we're managing for, we need a reduction in the number of menhaden that are coming out of the water. Um, I mean, that's what the latest science tells us. 
uh, if we want to fully recover this fish, there needs to be about a 20% reduction in the amount of menhaden that are harvested because it's it's a key forage base for those fish. And it's a key forage base not only during the formative years, um, you know, when there are juvenile menhaden in the marsh and the redfish are eating those at times, uh, but it's really an important forage base during the spawning cycle. Um, you know, if you look at a map, say, of how the menhaden fishermen fish, how the pogey boats fish, uh, a lot of their effort is concentrated in relatively shallow water uh, during the late summer and early fall. Uh, that's when redfish go out to spawn. That's when they collect in these large aggregates uh, and they move off the coast uh, to spawn. And it's that at that time that, you know, you see a lot of four, five, six, even seven inch pogies out there schooled up. The redfish are out there to eat the pogies. And I think the reason why you see uh, reports of 350 dead redfish washing up on a beach in, you know, September, or you see... Um, you know, dead redfish left in the wake of the pokey boats during the late summer is because the redfish are out there spawning. Uh, yeah. They're out there eating the menhaden that are that are in those areas, and the pokey boats are coming um, coming to catch those menhaden. It's inevitable, based on the way those guys fish, um, that they're going to kill spawning size redfish when they're out there trying to do their thing. Yeah. And just to give our listeners a, a bit of a better understanding. So Menhaden, Bunker, Pogies, whatever you call them, is a super important food fish for many species of game fish, stripers, snappers. I mean, anything's going to eat a pogie. They're, they've got lots of oil. They're very nutrient rich. And there's these boats that come in. And like Chris is saying, right off the coast, they use a sane a giant net and they just suck them out of the water and i was shocked and in, in looking at the trcp website i read that nearly one billion with a b pounds of pogies are harvested by this industrial fishery every year a billion pounds that's crazy yeah. so that harvest is, is, is off louisiana's coast about 70 percent of that uh, happens actually in Louisiana waters, uh, and that's from three processing plants, one in Mississippi, uh, one near Venice, Louisiana, and one kind of in southwest Louisiana uh, near Abbeville. But um, but when you say when you, a 20% reduction, that's like 20% of a billion is a lot. <laughs> like that would be wonderful if we can get that passed. Well, and I think the other thing that, that that you have to take into consideration is the bycatch. Um, you know, like there's just not a ton of information or accurate information, but it's changing. I mean, there's going to be additional bycatch studies to take place on the Menaden fishery. The science is evolving and it's getting better and more precise. But, you know, right now the estimate is that is that those boats kill about 12,500 12-pound 12 plus redfish a year. Uh, I would say it's more. Yeah, that uh, just, sounds really low to me when you're talking a billion pounds. Right, right. Just by my observations, I think it's more. Um, but I don't know that for sure. But I would say anybody who's seen the Menhaden fishery in action, seen the pogey boats out off the beach, and seen what gets left behind sometimes, uh, will tell you that it's it's more redfish than that that are getting killed. Um but, you know, it's a cumulative effect. You're, you're not only reducing the number of, you know, the amount of forage that's in the water, 
but you're also killing those fish directly by putting them in the persane nets. Uh, and, you know, through the extraction process, you're killing them. You're also disrupting the spawning cycle uh, by concentrating that activity in the places that the redfish want to spawn. Um, and, you know, you're, you're affecting water quality um, because, you know, as those boats do what they do in relatively shallow water, and sometimes we're talking about water as shallow as five feet, they're stirring up a lot of bottom content. The, the water gets muddy. It reduces the oxygen content in the water. It's very noticeable. Um, it's not pretty. It is not a pretty sight, and it's smelly and it's gross. It's it's an industrial activity, basically. I mean, it's an industrial scale fisheries activity. It's not a mom and pop grabbing operation. No. It's not a you know dragging a shrimp trawl. It is an industrial scale fishery uh, that's taking place. You know in the same places that redfish like to live and spawn. Yeah. So if we can get them out of the picture a little bit, and then, you know, we were talking about a slot limit too. So redfish, most States are managed with a slot limit. And I believe in Louisiana, it's what 18 to 24 inches you can keep or. It's been 16 to 27 inches okay. uh, last three decades, roughly. And um Oh, and, so 18, that's what they want to change it to then is 18, right? Yeah. So the suggestion has been to change it from, to, you know, either 18 to 27 or 18 to 24 and to, to do away with any retention of anything over the slot. Uh, and then to, uh, to either go down to a three fish or a four fish creel limit. Uh, and right now it's five fish. So, uh, you know, again, pretty liberal, um, you know, the kind of, limits that we've had for the last 25 plus years on speckled trout and redfish in Louisiana have been have been liberal um but but you know the other thing you got to think about is the productivity of this this area has always been so incredibly high because we had so much wetland we had relatively low effort compared to other states like Florida or Alabama or Texas um and we got the Mississippi River which differentiates Louisiana from other places, you know, just the amount of habitat that that river can build, the nutrients, the food that it puts back in the water. The problem, though, is that that the connection that that river had with the adjacent basins has been cut off largely. Uh, and the habitat, the coastal marshes that that river built over thousands and thousands and thousands of years have been degrading and falling apart and sinking and disappearing for the last century. Um, you know, I would say that and I've talked to several biologists about this, and it's hard for them to go on the record sometimes because knowing definitively the relationship between, like, it's hard to know, okay, we lost 100 square miles of marsh to a hurricane. That means we're going to get this many fewer fish, right? It's hard to, to draw that exact parallel, but all of them know that the habitat is 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 critical and losing that much habitat has obviously had uh a sizable detriment impact on our fisheries production well it's scary and i mean that's a lot harder to fix i would imagine than changing some regulations and dropping the creel limit and it's like you know these habitat questions are going to haunt us for years i think until and every area is so different but i mean what are what are the thoughts in, in your home state of, of how we can how we can adjust this or help or educate well there's there's really only a couple of things that we can do here in louisiana and we've been doing them probably better than anywhere else in the country just because this is the 
you know, the, it, it's the nexus of the habitat loss. I mean, it's such a critical issue here in the state. Um, you know, we've got a coastal restoration master plan uh, that's been around since Hurricane Katrina and Rita hit in 2005. The first master plan was released in 2007, and it combined habitat restoration with levee protection, you know, with the physical infrastructure. Uh, and it's been critical in getting habitat restoration projects on the ground. Like we've built several, you know, thousand acre plus um, marsh restoration projects in this state, um, you know, either borrowing sediment from offshore to rebuild the marsh, uh, borrowing sediment out of the Mississippi River, um, you know, basically trying to recreate marsh where we can, critical ge geographic, geologic features. Uh, it's just hard to keep up with the amount of loss that you're seeing, you know, like you can't recreate uh, the scale of the habitat with a dredge in the same way as you can by, say, reconnecting the Mississippi River through a diversion. And sure. there, there's a diversion that's uh, that's that's going towards construction, we hope, uh, in the next decade. Uh, it's on track to begin construction um, called the Mid-Baritary Sediment Diversion. And the whole idea there is to reconnect the river, that suspended sediment in the river system, that built those wetlands in the first place and allow it to start depositing that sediment and rebuilding that, that, that habitat. And I think that's one of the critical things. Like, I don't want to get in a bunch of arguments with guys down the river. I don't want to get in a bunch of fights anymore with recreational fishermen about diversions versus non-diversion, what the freshwater is going to do versus, you know, letting the salt come in. I mean, I think those, those questions have been debated so much and have largely been resolved, I think. I mean, I think we know that when you put the fresh water back into the system, that seasonally you're going to displace fish. Um, but in terms of our long-term production for everything, speckled trout, redfish, uh, and, and what they like to eat in these coastal estuaries, you, you have to have that mix of fresh and salt, that sediment deposition and the habitat that gets created. You have to have and if you don't have it, then Louisiana becomes what you see in every other coastal Gulf state, right? What differentiates Louisiana, separates it, is the Mississippi River, you know? And so plugging that river back in is critical. Like you've got to have the kind of habitat that gets created by that river, by that mix of fresh and salt water to have the fisheries production that we've all become accustomed to. Yeah, it, I can see it's critical, but I can also see how complicated, you know, you know, when you talk about stakeholders, oh my Lord, uh, that's a, that's a lot of people that's affecting and, but from a fisherman standpoint, you know, it's still the sportsman's paradise. It's one of the coolest places to fish. You know, you go down to Venice or some of these places you're talking about and it's just fishing is such a way of life there. I mean, it's so cool. Everybody's talking it. Everybody's part of it. Um, and I just, I just hope and pray it keeps going for a long time. And I'm sure it will, right? Oh, it 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 will. I mean, you know, we talk about this in terms of, um, you know, the way it used to be 25 or 30 years ago versus what it is now. Um. And, and honestly, there have been times in the last 10 years where, you know, I'd put my hand on a Bible and tell you, this is as good as fishing gets. Uh, yes. for most, 
and redfish. Uh, it's not as widespread as it once was. But I mean, like, take for instance, last week I was in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Uh, the weather was terrible. Like, you couldn't have had worse conditions. You know, the, the strongest cold front of the year had just blown in. The wind was blowing 25 to 30. I still caught a dozen redfish in a ditch off the side of the road. That's you know? crazy. You can't do that day, anywhere else. <laughs> right. You know, like there were ponds on the side of the road just north of Grand Isle where there were, you know, a dozen fish tailing, chasing mullet, chasing shrimp out of the grass. You know, the next day we were able to get in a boat. You know, I caught three redfish, you know, just on on plastics under a popping cork, three nice size, you know, probably 12 to 14 pound redfish. We caught several 15 to 21 inch speckled trout. You know, on on days where, you know, you wouldn't think that it would be a, a great fishing day and you still have opportunities to, to to catch those fish. I think what you see, though, is that it's not just a matter of habitat loss that's affected the productivity, but that marsh loss has opened up so much water. You know, like there's just so much open water now in areas that used to be marsh. And so that not only affects the productivity, it affects our ability to get to the fish. Um, you know, if if the wind's blowing 15 and you leave out of Grand Isle and you got to cross nine miles of open water now to get to where the fish are, you're not going to go uh, or you're going to get the crap beat out of you, you know. And so it's a different fishery um, than it was, not just in terms of productivity, but in terms of the, your ability to access the fish. Um because all that open water just makes it that much more difficult to fish for them. Yeah. And in, in the boats change and the gear change, all the, everything adjusts. And I mean, anglers figure it out one way or another. Some guy is going to put the pieces together and make it happen. But I think moving forward, you know, to be proactive, uh, working with groups like TRCP or, you know, what can the Joe Blow fisherman, Joe Sixpack guy who wants to help out? Um, what's the biggest way to make an impact? I think, you know, it, it feels like we always fishermen sort of get more interest locally. Like you don't really go crazy until something happens in your backyard. But I really feel like this is something that affects all of us in the Southeast. Um so what would your recommendation do to stay involved, stay, you know, informed, all that? Well, I, I think, number one, you, you know, you got to start paying attention to the habitat. Like, that's critical. You, you, you don't have habitat. And that goes for all wildlife and fisheries. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, you look at it like this from the Louisiana perspective. Um, you know, if I took two bucks and two does and put them in the middle of the desert and came back a year later, I don't know that I would have a herd of deer, um, you know, and that's kind of what's happened in Louisiana. You've lost so much habitat that even if the fish do recruit back into the marsh, they're not going to have the food necessary. They're not going to have the habitat necessary to grow into, into fish that'll, that'll live and spawn again. Um, so paying attention to the, the, the habitat restoration where you're in Louisiana and, you know, water quality is a huge issue. Um, you know, I know in South Florida, that's been a big, big issue in terms of like nutrient loading and things like that. Sure. You know, the organizations that are trying to work on improving those things, please support those organizations. I mean, getting the habitat right is critical. Um, I think the other thing is, and, 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 you know, this is something that, that, that my fishing buddies and I have talked about a lot. Um, you know, we've been truly blessed to have grown up in Louisiana, you know, um, 
just the number of fish that we've been able to catch. And I talked about it earlier, just, you know, some days where you catch 50, 60, 70 redfish, or you catch a speckled trout for three and a half hours every time the bait hits the water or, you know, anything else, cobia, red snapper, mangrove snapper, you name it. We've got a lot of it. Um, but it's not always incumbent upon the state to tell you how to be a good conservationist, right? It's not always my responsibility as, you know, Chris Macaluso, part-time outdoor writer, full-time, you know, TRCP guy. It's not my responsibility to tell you or dictate to you, you know, put a fish back every once in a while. Like, think about how many fish you need to put in your freezer. Um, you know, there's no reason why, even if the limit's four or the limit's five, why you need to keep that many. Um, and, and look, there were times in the past where, where, you know, I was a glutton when it came to keeping fish, you know, we'd keep 50 speckled trout in the morning, we'd clean them, we'd give as many of them as way, we'd eat a bunch of them, but there were always fish in my freezer that lasted six months, eight months, you know, beyond the point where we wanted to eat them. You know, we figured out a long time ago that six or eight trout a person a morning is plenty of fish. You come home, you clean those fish, you go home with a nice little bag of fish, you eat on them for a couple of nights, you share some with mom and dad. That's plenty of fish. It's not always the state's responsibility. You know, what, what state fisheries managers are looking at is, you know, this is how many fish we need to have in the water in order for us to have a sustainable population. And we're going to set the limits based on that, okay? But because the state tells you you can keep five, doesn't mean you have to keep five. Yeah, you, know, you can put some of those fish back and it's it's really OK. Um, so, you know, work on uh, the personal ethic, you know, the personal ethos of I'm going to put some fish back or I'm going to take a few home to eat. and I'm going to put 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 a few back in. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and so that's important, you know, there and there are other things, but stay engaged, you know, know what the regulations are, especially now in this social media age where. You know, you, uh, you know, well, number one, the commission meetings and what happens at the Gulf Council, what happens at other places where they're deciding how to manage fish, those things have never been more available. Like you can go online and you watch them. You don't have to go to Biloxi or to Mobile or to Houston, uh, or you don't have to come to Baton Rouge to, to see a commission meeting. You know, you mm -hmm. can watch them online. You can get the information straight from the horse's mouth, you know? And the other thing is, um, you know, with, with all of these chat rooms on Facebook and all of this stuff going on, make sure the information you're sharing out there is accurate. That's um, a big one. Yeah. I mean, there are lengthy public comment periods uh, dealing with these changes in regulation. Uh, it takes a while for them to get implemented, but it seems like every time there's even a discussion, uh, it, it's like there's a four alarm fire, you know, uh, understand the process, understand that you know, these things take time that you've got opportunity to to have your opinion heard uh, and just work through the process. Yeah, it's, you know, and you mentioned you're a writer as well and putting out magazines, we don't dive too much into conservation in Angler's Journal because it's not sexy. It's not the stuff, you know, it's not a trip to the other side of the world with amazing photos, but this is our own backyard. These fish are a blast to catch. I want them around. You know, we don't have to kill our limit. I think that was something I just always felt when I was over there. And you find the right guide. You know, there's plenty of dudes out there and women out there who 
they may tell you like, yeah, I'd love to take you fishing, but look, I'm not going to kill 40 fish or whatever the number is. And, and then just be like, yeah, that's cool. And, and maybe like you said, take one or two, take some photos and then, you know, leave with a good feeling in your heart <laughs> that you didn't, you know, just whack the resource. And, and I can see it's, it's the younger generation, I think gets it a lot more and seems more apt to do that. So I think with organizations like TRCP and we're getting the right messages out there and, you know, those limits are changing and and it doesn't even, like you said, that self-policing I think is going to be big. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not saying don't keep a fish. I keep fish all the time. I do uh, too. It's, I get it. And, and I love to eat them. And there are other, you know, there are other fish out there that I think that are, that, that, probably tastes better than speckled trout, which is part of the reason why I've started putting several of them back. Like I'll go catch crappie, you know, we call them sackalay here. I mean, those are better to eat. I like channel catfish. I like to eat a redfish every once in a while. Whiting are delicious. Sheep's head are delicious. You know, there's options out there. And those are personal decisions that I make about what I want to keep and eat. But at the same time, you know, if you get the opportunity to be on the water, you know, once a month, every other month, you know, twice a month, three times a month, Bring some home. I get it. Don't put the rest of them back. You don't need to kill that many fish. Yeah. And it's, you know, like you're here in Florida where I fish Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River Lagoon. We have had a lot of water problems and I don't want to get into the weeds about it, but it's, you know, there really isn't any grass or weed left, but it's coming back. You know, I was out on the north side of Mosquito Lagoon just recently and every time I reeled in my soft plastic and there was grass on the hook, I like wanted to jump up and down, you know, like it, it it's getting better. Things are changing. Mm -hmm. So we can fix it. We don't need to get depressed about it. We need to be aware, but um, go to Louisiana as fishing still as good as it's going to be, you know, anywhere in the Gulf. Yeah, it's awesome. And there's really, you know, people ask me all the time, when should I come to Louisiana to fish? I mean, if what? I had whenever you can <laughs> had to pick you know it would be april 15th through the end of june and then again you know october 1st through the end of the year i mean there are times you know during the summer you can catch a ton of fish but it's miserably hot sometimes and during the winter you can catch a lot of fish too but you know the weather can be a little bit more iffy but if you come in the spring and you come in the fall especially right now yeah like, the red fishing's good it's incredible i mean we made a trip unfortunately in the middle of the blazing heat in late july down to venice and we went bass fishing we caught some nice bass we caught some redfish but the one thing that i found and, and this is something that that i'm encouraged by and that i've found in other parts of the state uh this fall there are a lot of 14 to say 15 and a half inch redfish in the water right now that's encouraging uh, very encouraging um you know i think what we we saw you know, the long-term problem with redfish, obviously, you know, has a lot to do with habitat loss. It has a lot to do with not having enough food in the water at times. It has a lot to do with just increased pressure. The short-term problems, I think, that we saw with redfish over the last three to four years and why people were having such a hard time catching them is that we just got incessantly pounded by hurricanes. Um, and they came at a time when those fish were trying to recruit into the marsh you know, as, as juveniles, larval fish, we're trying to recruit into the marsh and then the marsh gets inundated with hurricane storm surge and then the marsh gets ripped apart. And so we haven't had that in the last couple of years, thankfully. Um, it looks like we'll make it through this hurricane season without anything significant, knock on wood. 
Um, but those those weather anomalies, whether it be just, you know, 500 year floods on the Mississippi River or 500 year hurricanes, those things do have a, a detrimental impact on those fish. And, and so that's something we have to keep in mind as well. But it looks like based on the, the fish that I've been catching since the middle of the summer and even back into the spring, we've got a pretty good crop uh, that that's come out the last couple of years. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. I want to get back down there. Uh, it's one of my favorite places, especially fly fishing for redfish there. If you're not the greatest fly fisherman, that is the place to go because you're going to get so many shots and watching a redfish trying to crush a topwater is just like comical and exciting. And, you know, they're not really engineered for that and they'll just keep going after it. And I've, I've hooked big fish next to the boat and then lost them and had another. I mean, it's just, it's a phenomenal place and, and I love it. And um, I, I know you do too. And uh, we're lucky to have folks like you looking out for it. And um, thank you so much for making the time and, and sharing your, your knowledge with us, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. And let me know when you come, man. We'll, we'll get together. We'll go catch a couple fish. I'd love that. I'd love that. And we'll keep one because I, you know, it's okay to eat it and have some fun and a few beers there too. It's part of the tradition. All right, Chris, take care.